This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. We're going to turn to the Word of God together. Our children can be dismissed. They have some activities downstairs, I believe. Um, so if they'd like to scoot off for that and the rest of us are going to turn to the Gospel of John in chapters 19 and 20, the Gospel of John. The very end of chapter 19, verse 41. Listen to the word of God. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Living God, you still speak today through these words of Scripture, and we hear the voice of the resurrected Lord through them. We pray that we would hear our own names being uttered, that fresh life would awaken within our souls as we listen again to the Easter witness. May we respond in faith, in joy, and in mission. In Christ's triumphant name we pray. Amen. Well, even after 20 centuries, you can still feel the shock of the resurrection pulsing through these stories. 
And these are eyewitness accounts, you understand, written down while most of the people involved were still alive. And these stories, the way they're told, they bear the ring of truth, the grief, the fear, the doubt, the disciples racing each other to the tomb, Mary mistaking Jesus for the gardener, the difficulty everyone has in believing the astounding fact of the resurrection. We must never forget that the very first witness of the risen Lord, the first human being to stand in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, was a woman. And in the society in which these words were recorded, and for centuries and centuries afterwards, this was a big problem because the word of a woman, women, as everyone knew in those cultures, were notoriously emotional and hysterical, and in fact, their words were not even admissible in a court of law. And surely, if anyone was inventing this story of the resurrection, trying to craft a new religion to get people's money and devotion, the very last person you would put in as a witness to the risen Jesus would be a woman. And in fact, in the succeeding centuries, Christians had a hard time responding to the challenges of pagans like Celsus, who sneered at the fact that it was just a woman's story. And yet, Jesus chose a woman to be the one to whom he first appeared, Mary, Mary Magdalene. And in later church tradition, there was some confusion about exactly who Mary Magdalene was. Somehow she became identified with the repentant sinner, washing the feet of Jesus with her hair and anointing him with oil. And supposedly this legend arose of her being a former prostitute, but she's almost certainly not that woman. But Luke describes her briefly in Luke chapter 8 as one of the wealthy woman disciples who followed Jesus along with the twelve and financially supported his ministry, pulling out her credit card to pay for the restaurants and the motels as Jesus wandered around Galilee and Judea ministering to people. And we can imagine perhaps that she was the widow of a wealthy merchant. And Luke also tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of this woman. And he doesn't describe the horror of what it meant for Mary to, be have, to have been infested with these unclean spirits, but thinking of the other stories in the Gospels of the boy that the demons kept on flinging into the fire or the man who roared among the tombs, scratching himself with stones, we can only imagine what it was like for Mary when Jesus showed up in her hometown, Magdala, and with a word cast out these demons and set this woman free. And from the day that Mary experienced the powerful liberation of Jesus' presence, she was utterly devoted to him. And in John's gospel, when all the male disciples abandon Jesus and even deny him or betray him, Mary is there at the foot of the cross as a witness to her master being tortured and executed. And heartbreaking, she followed and saw where Jesus was buried in the garden before dusk 
that marked the beginning of the Sabbath day. No care for a corpse could be done on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, while everyone's still asleep in their beds, in the dark before dawn, Mary is on the road heading outside the city gates to anoint the body of Jesus. A brave act for a single woman in the dark, outside the safety of the city, but grief seems to have driven the fear right out of her. And she arrives at the tomb, which would have been a kind of a man-made cave hewn out of the rock, covered by a heavy stone disc about one meter in diameter that would have been rolled along a track to seal the mouth of the tomb. And it would have taken several strong men to move this stone away and impossible to remove from the inside of the tomb. And Mary arrives at the grave. It's the first gray light of dawn is coming over the horizon and she sees that the stone has been rolled to the side. It's still dark outside. All she can see is a black hole that she assumes the worst. Someone has taken Jesus' body. Perhaps the Roman authorities or the Jewish leaders taken away this body of this criminal and this rebel left to be venerated in some way and perhaps burning or mutilating the corpse. And Mary is distraught and she runs to wake up Simon Peter and John, the disciple Jesus loved. And these two disciples sprint to the tomb, leaving Mary in the dust. John is apparently the more athletic of the two disciples. He reaches the tomb before Peter, but being the more cautious and contemplative sight, he looks in but does not enter. And the impulsive Peter, true to character, pushes past him and stoops to crawl through the low entrance into the cave. There's no body there, but on the ledge where the body would have been left to decompose, they see strips of linen and a head covering neatly lying there. Peter is not sure what to make of it, but John, he feels the first stirrings of faith in his heart. Something is happening, and the two of them head back to the city. But at some point, after they leave, Mary returns alone. This woman is standing outside the tomb, weeping and weeping. She's heartbroken. And she stoops to peer in, and in this cave she sees two angels dressed in white where the body had been. And any time in Scripture someone sees an angel, they are astonished and afraid, and they fall down. But this woman is so singularly focused on Jesus that she's not even fazed by the fact that she's having an encounter with these angelic figures. Why are you weeping? They ask kindly. She tells them, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. All that Mary wants to do is pay her last respects to this man who had changed her life. And now, even that has been taken away from her. And then, 
Standing there at the narrow entrance to the tomb, Mary senses a third presence behind her, and she turns around to see a stranger standing there. It was, in fact, the risen Jesus, but Mary doesn't recognize him. Was it because her eyes were swollen from tears, or was she somehow kept from recognizing Jesus by an act of the Spirit, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus later that afternoon? This man asked her the same sympathetic question. Ma'am, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Well, she's looking for Jesus, of course, and the Jesus she's looking for is a cold and mutilated corpse. And Mary Magdalene has mistaken Jesus in the semi-light for the gardener here to start another week pruning trees or putting in new flower beds. And she asks him, sir, please, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and get him. It doesn't matter to Mary that this is a dead body wrapped in 100 pounds of spices. It's an impossible task, but to Mary, her devotion has no limits. Here's this disciple, distraught, confused, blinded by tears. And then Jesus speaks a single word, her name, Mariam. Jesus shortest sermon, but it's a powerful one because Mary must have been facing away from them. She must have turned back to peer into the tomb, but the good shepherd calls his sheep by name, and the sheep know their master's voice. And here we are on Easter Sunday, the turning point of world history, and the risen, exalted Lord pauses to give a personal revelation of himself to a devoted and broken disciple. And when Mary hears Jesus utter her name, her heart gives a great leap upward as though the sun had burst over the horizon, and she turns with huge eyes to see that the gardener is indeed Jesus. Standing there in the dawn sunlight, not a ghostly apparition, the risen Lord, looking at her, and I'm sure smiling at her. Rabboni, she exclaims in Aramaic, my teacher, the name she must have always called him when he was alive. And faith and hope and joy fill her heart, and she embraces Jesus, determined never to let him go again. This is no corpse. This is no ghost. This is no fainting, resuscitated victim. The presence of Christ radiates life. Death conquering 
immortality shines out of him. This Jesus who was crucified in weakness, raised in the power of God. And in his presence, all grief, all sorrow, all fear, all despair, and all doubt melt away. And as long as Mary is with Jesus, she knows that all will be well. But then Jesus gently disentangles Mary. He tells her, Mary, stop clinging to me. Many, many more need to hear that I have risen. This tiny band of discouraged, fearful disciples and a whole world of people who need to be brought into a living relationship with my Father. Mary, you need to go and find my brothers. What an amazingly gracious word for these men who had betrayed and denied and abandoned Jesus. Go to my brothers and give them this message. I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene had the high honor of being the first human being to stand in the presence of the risen Christ. Jesus might have chosen many weighty, important, influential, powerful people for this revelation. But he chooses the first one to be this woman who had once been possessed by seven demons. And now Jesus sends Mary on mission. It's understandable, of course, that she wants to bask in her presence. But there's a time when even worship and intimacy can become selfish. Mary is called to mission immediately on Easter Sunday, and Jesus sends Mary to be the apostle to the apostles, to announce the gospel that Christ is risen, that he's going to ascend to the right hand of God to reign over the world, and that through his death and his resurrection, he is sharing his own relationship to the Father, to everyone who will believe in him. My God, now your God. My Father and your Father. And all of us who have put our faith in Jesus today, we've done so ultimately because of the testimony recorded in the Gospels of Mary Magdalene and the other witnesses who encountered the risen Jesus. There's a beautiful detail in John's account that I want to spend a little time with as we close. The beginning of our reading, you notice that John emphasizes that the tomb of Jesus is in the garden. And then Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. And of all the biblical writers, John is the one who loves symbolism the most. And I'm sure that was... No accident that he recorded those details. You know, the garden in the Bible symbolizes tranquility and flourishing and abundance. And of course, the very beginning of this book begins in a garden. God planted the first human beings in the Garden of Eden, a wonderful land watered by four rivers with the tree of life at the center. And Adam 
is called to be the gardener, to tend and to keep the garden with Eve at his side. And this first couple had the joy of spending time with God in the cool of the day, enjoying communion with their maker. And then an alien force entered the garden. The serpent entered, tempted them. They ate of the forbidden tree, and they were expelled from the garden, which would now be guarded by angels with flaming swords. The ground now is cursed with thorns, And they're out in the barren wilderness creating civilization with all its noise and pollution and violence and extortion and sin. But humanity has always retained this memory of being in the garden with God. And we have a longing somehow to find our way back there. And now in John's account, I think we have Jesus being described as the second Adam the true gardener. And Mary's mistake may have had prophetic truth in it. Jesus came to bear the curse of sin, to take the thorns and wear them on his own head, to be impaled on a tree, to die for the sin of Adam and Eve and all our sins since then. And the biblical story Man is born in the garden and now reborn in the garden. And here on Easter Sunday, at dawn, in the cool of the day, the second Adam appears to announce that communion with our God and our Father has been restored. I want to show you a few pieces of art this afternoon, because this is a detail that artists who have painted the encounter of Mary Magdalene with Jesus have delighted in over the centuries. And this first image is going to come on the screen here, and hopefully you can see that with some clearness. And this is a painting by Fra Angelico, and um, there's Mary with the halo around her head, this woman who had once been demonized now as the solid gold halo as a holy woman. She's reaching out to touch Jesus, and you can just see there the little red flowers on the ground like drops of blood from Jesus that are bringing life to the world. And notice that Jesus is carrying a hoe over his shoulder. And then we have this next painting by the Dutch artist Rembrandt. Um, and Jesus delightfully is wearing, you know, one of those floppy sun hats that people wear in the garden to protect themselves. In the shade, he's carrying a shovel, and Mary is bowing before him. This next painting is by an Indian artist, Jyoti Sahi, and here we have this beautiful image of Jesus, who almost seems like a tree standing in the garden, and he's carrying scythe, which we normally associate, of course, with the grim reaper, don't we? Carrying the scythe over his shoulder, the harvester of death. And now it's as though Jesus has ripped that scythe out of the hands of death and carrying it himself to bring in God's harvest. And Mary is bowing before Jesus, pouring out this jug of water, perhaps a reference to Psalm 126, which says that They that sow in tears shall reap in joy.
There's two paintings in particular that I want to show you by the Dutch artist Jan-Peter Molwijk. He's a contemporary artist. And this next painting here is from 2017 called The New Gardener. And the woman that he chose as his model for Mary is his daughter, Mattia, who, who, who died. And he's put her in a bridal dress, bowing before Jesus. And you notice he's dressed like a gardener in the overalls, and he has butterflies on the wounds in his hands and his feet as a symbol of transformation. And behind him, you can see the flowering branches of the tree, like we're seeing these trees blossoming all over Tbilisi, crowning Jesus with spring glory. But this last painting is the one that I find deeply moving, where you can see Jesus and Mary uh, showered by white flower petals, and you can hardly see it on the screen here, but his breath is visible as he speaks her name, and she's brushing his arm very lightly with her pinky finger. And in the background, you can see uh, a garden shovel in the top right corner propped up on a heap of soil indicating the breaking of new ground. But the most beautiful aspect of this painting is that what Jesus is doing with his hand, and I'm going to share this on Facebook so you can see these paintings properly. He's actually um, removing the protective fencing around the tree of life, welcoming Mary in. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, the gardener, giving us access at last to the tree of life from which we were always meant to eat. And in the New Jerusalem, this beautiful garden city that John describes in the book of Revelation, we see the tree of life in the center of the city and everyone eating of its fruit for the healing of the nations. Brothers and sisters, today we celebrate the victory of Jesus over the power of death. We are all mortal. And death's power is already working in our bodies even now, and one day, unless Jesus comes back before, it will claim us. But that is not the end of the story, because today on Easter, we celebrate the victory of our God over sin, over Satan, and death through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We are Easter people, and at the very center of our faith is the crucified and risen Lord. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we are all of all people the most to be pitied. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. And all of us who believe in Jesus have heard his voice speaking our names to our hearts, summoning us to resurrection life. Let's bow our heads and pray. glorious Father of the glorious risen Son, we bow before you today in awe and wonder and worship. And we thank you, God, that when we were lost in sin and death, you took pity on us and you stepped into our world. You became a human being. You took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We rejoice, Father, that you did not abandon your son to death or to corruption, but you raised him into everlasting life, which he now shares with all who believe in his name. Lord, we pray that you would speak our names yet again 
with life-giving power to our hearts. Whether we have heard you before, whether we've never heard your voice speaking faith in our hearts, oh Lord, give us the grace to respond ourselves like Mary with joy, with gladness, and with obedient mission. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF hyphen georgia.org thanks for listening